You know, sometimes uh, I think that I might be the only pastor in America whose hobby and pastime is not golf. Uh, it just seems like most pastors play golf, and I've just, I've just never gotten into it. I know that, that Pastor Drew is a big golfer, and it looks fun. I, I just, I, I've, I've tried to get out there once or twice, and I just can't get into it. I'll, I'll go hit a bucket of balls maybe once a year, and, and, and I'll call that good. But I am a sports fan. And uh, even though I don't follow golf or watch golf, I was super interested to see Tiger Woods win his first major tournament uh, just a couple of weekends ago. Um, if, you, if you don't know the story, of course, Tiger Woods for years and years was really considered the greatest golfer ever. And then he hit uh, a very difficult patch, and he went from being the best in the world to the worst. Everybody that, that, that speaks about golf and all the sports commentators said, man, Tiger needs to hang it up. He needs to retire. He's never going to win again. And lo and behold, he, he's back. Tiger is back. And if you remember what sort of started his downfall, it was back in 2009. It came out. The sports world was shocked to hear that, that Tiger Woods had been involved in many extramarital affairs. Now, this was really shocking to people because Tiger Woods always had such a squeaky clean image. We always thought that he was one of the good guys. But when it came out that, that woman after woman after woman came forward and admitted that Tiger had been unfaithful with them, we realized that, that Tiger Woods was really no different than some of the other entitled, spoiled athletes that we hear about. And so not long after that, Tiger Woods went on national television, very somber, and publicly apologized to his family, his friends, his fans, and his sponsors. So in some form or another, Tiger Woods repented. And we've seen that before, haven't we? We've seen public figures that will fall and embarrass themselves. They'll oftentimes publicly repent of their wrongdoings. I wonder what comes into your mind when, when you hear that word, repent. Now, that's one of those church words that we, that we tend to throw around a lot. Um, for some of us, that word might carry a little bit of baggage. Maybe when you think of the word repent, you think of a, of a street preacher on a street corner with a sandwich board sign talking about the end of the world, talking about repenting. Um, maybe for you, when you uh, hear that word, it, good feelings uh, come into your mind because maybe there was a time in your life where you were headed down the wrong path and somehow God got a hold of your life and, and you turned around and now you're walking in, in the right direction. You repented and for you, that's a good thing. Well, I want to talk this morning about repentance, what it means and what it means for our lives. We are three weeks into a sermon series called From Here to There, a roadmap for spiritual growth. What we're doing in the series is we're talking about what it looks like in our lives to get from where we currently are spiritually in our relationship with God to where we need to be spiritually in our relationship with God. And we're using the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel as a roadmap. So far, the first three chapters of this, uh, of this story, we've seen a, a woman named Hannah. We've talked about a priest named Eli and his two sons, who were also priests, named Hophni and Phinehas. And so today we come to chapter 4. If you have a copy of uh, God's Word with you this morning, let's go there. 1 Samuel chapter 4. Last week we talked about the very difficult topic of sin and God's judgment. Today we're going to talk about what our response should be when we understand that God judges, and our response should be to repent. You know, repentance means to, to change your mind or to think differently. 
The idea is that you've been walking in one direction and you, you, you stop, you reconsider your path and you begin to walk in a different direction. And what we'll see in this passage is that there are several types of repentance. And so this morning I hope to clarify what those are. My goal this morning is that we might leave here understanding just how incredibly important the right kind of repentance is and how life-giving it can be. Now, this story here in chapter 4 is all about the Ark of the Covenant. Um, If you're new to Bible study, it may surprise you that, yes, there actually was an Ark of the Covenant. Uh, When most of us think of the Ark of the Covenant, we think of this guy, right? Yeah. Indy. Well, the Ark of the Covenant was this box that represented and symbolized the presence of God. And Israel, the the people of God, would take this Ark with them uh, throughout their nomadic existence. So as they wandered through the desert, the Ark went with them. And it's still with them here in 1 Samuel as they are established and living in a permanent area. So where's the Ark of the Covenant today? Well, again, contrary to the Indiana Jones movies, I don't think it's in a big warehouse somewhere. Um, doesn't really matter where it's at. We, we don't need it. We have Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, you have the presence of God in you. But what we see in this story here in 1 Samuel is that there's a right kind of repentance, and there's a wrong kind of repentance, and it's all seen in relation to the Ark of the Covenant. So we're going to talk about two wrong kinds of repentance, and then the the one right kind of repentance, and we'll talk about what it means for our lives. So the first type of repentance is seen through the Israelites, and theirs was, we'll call it a self-centered repentance, a self-centered repentance. Notice how the story starts here, chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. So, Israel is doing battle against their old enemy, the Philistines. Uh, This was a neighboring group of people that the Israelites fought time and time again. And they fight them this time, and they lose. And they lose big time. And so the people go back to their camp, and they say to themselves, man, what's going on here? We're the people of God we're the ones that have this special relationship with God. How, how did we lose? And how do we avoid having this happen to us again? And so they say to themselves, I know. Let's, let's battle them again, but this time, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant with us into battle. Verse 5. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. 
Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So they lose again. This time, they supposedly have the presence of God with them, and yet they still just get annihilated. And to make matters worse, the ark of, of God is captured by the Philistines. Now, what we see here is that the Israelites, after their first initial loss, they, they demonstrate a form of repentance. They go back and they're licking their wounds and they're, they're evaluating what happened and they realize that they had done something wrong. And in a way, they, they repented of that. But it was really a self-centered repentance. They, they were looking at God as their good luck charm that would help them. Instead of actually repenting and turning back like they should, they just said, hey, we're going to take the ark with us, and, and that's just going to guarantee that we'll win. And God shows them here that he's not going to serve as their good luck charm. God actually allows the symbol of his presence to be captured by the enemy. That had to have been shocking for Israel. The, the second loss and the capture of the ark can only mean that they didn't lose because they had a flawed military strategy. They lost because it meant that God's presence wasn't really with them. Now here's the thing. Here's what I've noticed sometimes in my life. Sometimes I will do the exact same thing that Israel did. Sometimes I fall into the trap of, of trying to use God as my good luck charm. And I'm going to bet that sometimes you fall into that trap as well. You, you try to use God, you try to get God on your side, but you use him as a, as a good luck charm. Let me give you some, some ways that we tend to do that, or, or signs that you, you can tell that you're using God as a good luck charm. How about this? Your interaction with God is limited to times of trouble. When things are going well in your life, when things are going good, you don't really have a day-to-day -day vibrant relationship with God where you're loving God and you're worshiping God. But man, when things start to go south in your life, that's when you go to God. That's when you pray. That's when you begin to read your Bible. That, that's when you uh, come to church. Now listen, if that describes you this morning, if you're here in church today because things are going wrong in your life, we're glad that you're here. But the goal is to have that day-to-day -day vibrant relationship with God where we don't turn to him just during times of trouble. How about this? Your prayers are only ever self-focused. When you pray, you just tend to pray for yourself. God, help me to have a good day today. God, would you keep me safe today? God, would you watch over me? Your prayers don't ever tend to get any bigger than that. You don't tend to ask God to help you overcome that, that sin that you struggle with. You don't tend to ask God to do big things in you and through you. How about this? You buy into this cosmic karma belief. This is the idea that if you do good things for God, he's obligated to do good things for you. Well, God, I was kind to that person. God, I served in that ministry. I, I threw a few bucks in the offering uh, box. So, so God, you're obligated to give me a good, happy, carefree, easy life. You've bought into a, a, an idea of God that works more on karma than on grace. How about this? You rarely open your Bible. That really goes back to that, that first one. Your, your interaction with God is limited to times of trouble. You, you open your Bible when things are, are going wrong in your life. That's a form of self-centered repentance. And friends, it's really not any kind of repentance at all. This is what the Israelites fell into. 
Now, there's another wrong kind of repentance that we see in this story, and that is consequence-driven repentance. Consequence-driven repentance. And this is seen through Eli the priest. Now, we talked a lot about Eli last week. Um, Eli himself was an okay guy, but his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were not. They were priests in Israel, but they were unfaithful, and they were abusive with the power that they had. Eli knew this, and yet he allowed them to remain in their priestly office instead of removing them. So notice how the story continues in verse 12. That same day a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching, because his heart feared for the ark of God. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, what is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes had failed so that he could not see. He told Eli, I have just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, what happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines and the army has suffered a heavy loss. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken, and he died, for he was an old man, and he was heavy. He had led Israel for 40 years. Now, Eli was astute enough to know that God was not actually being held hostage in this ark by the Philistines. What troubled Eli so much to the point of death was that God's presence had left them what troubled him was that in many ways god was now against them and that terrified him and so eli fell back off his chair and his neck broke because he was so heavy and why was eli so heavy we saw last week chapter 2 verse 29 says why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourself on the choice parts of the offering made by my people Israel. If you remember from last week, one of the things that Eli's unfaithful sons were doing was stealing the meat that was meant to be sacrificed to God at the tabernacle. Eli was profiting from his son's sin and unfaithfulness. He was getting heavy on the meat that was intended for God. And the end result was that he's so heavy that his own heaviness killed him. Now Eli here has the right response. He, he trembles when he hears what happens. I mean, it, it shakes him up. And he's shook up about the right things. You know, this is interesting, but when Eli hears that Israel's lost the battle, he's okay. He's even okay when he hears that his sons have been killed. But when he hears that the ark of God has been captured, he falls over dead. He's troubled by the right thing, but it's too late. See, in a way, Eli's repentance is, is consequence-driven. He was terrified at what the consequences of God would be. And there's still a lot of people that repent this way. They're more concerned about the consequences of their sin than the offense against God that their sin is. You know, I grew up in in churches where fairly often the the pastor would get up and, man, he would preach some hellfire and brimstone sermon about the realities of hell. He'd scare us kids half to death and And then he'd say, listen, if you want to accept Christ and avoid going to hell, pray this prayer after me. And as a little kid, man, I must have prayed that prayer 200 times. But it was was consequence-driven. I was afraid of hell. I was afraid of God's judgment, and so I repented. See, it's possible to do some sort of repentance and not 
hate your sin or love God. It's, it's really easy for us to think that repentance is an option that's always available to us. Like it's this button that if you press it and you say the right words at the right time, it's going to erase any of the consequences that you might have to experience because of your sin. That's not what repentance is. You know, sometimes when you repent, God allows you to not experience the consequences of your sin, but sometimes he does. I think it was just a couple of weeks ago in one of the sermons I was preaching, I talked about Pete Rose. Pete Rose was my favorite baseball player when I was a kid. Uh, he, of course, was convicted of, of betting on baseball, and he was banned from baseball forever. So here's a player who's good enough to be in the Hall of Fame that isn't because of choices that he made. And through the years, he, he denied that he ever bet on baseball. And he had people around him telling him, listen, why don't you just admit it, and, and maybe they'll let you into the Hall of Fame. And so he finally admitted to it. But he still denied that he ever bet on his own team until several years ago. He finally admitted that when he was the coach of the Cincinnati Reds, he had actually bet on the Reds. And I remember hearing him in an interview after that, and I got the impression that he thought that if he finally just admitted what everybody wanted to know, that the consequences of his actions would be taken away, and he'd be allowed into the Hall of Fame. And it hasn't happened that way. I think his repentance was consequence-driven. Friends, what concerns you most about your sin? Is it the fact that you're experiencing the consequences of your sin or that you might have to experience those consequences? Or is the thing that concerns you the most the fact that your sin hurts the God who loves you? Self-centered repentance, consequence-driven repentance, it's, it's really not any kind of repentance at all. But I want to look now at the right type of repentance, and we'll simply call this godly repentance. And it's seen in verse 19 through Eli's daughter-in-law. Notice the story continues, verse 19. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains. As she was dying, the woman attending her said, Don't despair, you've given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband, she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Now that may not seem like any form of repentance at all, but, but in a way, this tragic situation is exactly what repentance is. Eli's daughter-in-law hears what's happened to her family and her husband and to the ark, and she starts having labor pains. That's actually a really good metaphor of what happens when we start to see our need to repent. There, there's an uncomfortableness in us. There, there's this spiritual pain and agony over our sin. And so she names her son Ichabod. means the glory of the Lord has departed. This woman is demonstrating the repentance that all of Israel should have been involved in. She's not trying to get out of the consequences. She, she's not trying to use God for her own benefit. She's surrendering herself to God to the point of death. She sees the severity of the sin of her nation, and she is beside herself. That word Ichabod is a really interesting Hebrew word. Kabod is the Hebrew word for glory. And what it really means is heavy or, or weightiness. 
God's glory refers to his, his heaviness. It, it's interesting, and think about this, Eli died because of his own heaviness. This woman has the heaviness of God on her, the glory of God, and she screams out in anguish. What she's basically saying is, God, I'll take the consequences. See, repentance is getting to the end of yourself. It's when you stop bargaining with God. It's, it's confessing and saying, God, you are right, you are just and fair to bring whatever consequences in my life because of my sin. Repentance is seeing your sinfulness in light of God's holiness and glory. It's seeing all the dirt and grime in your life and saying, God, I need your mercy. See, repentance isn't primarily about what you're fleeing from. It's about who you're fleeing to. That's the best thing about repentance is that you get God. And so here's the the big idea of this sermon. This is what I want us to understand. Repentance is the blessing through which all of God's blessings flow. Do you want to be blessed by God? Do you want to experience God's favor? Do you want to know God's blessing? Then repent of whatever it is that's keeping you from loving God fully. Repentance is the blessing through which all of God's blessings flow. Repentance is a gift that God gives us. In the book of Acts it says, that we are to repent so that times of refreshing may come. Repentance is like a a shower after a long day where you've been outside working and you're tired and you're hot and you're sweaty and you're grimy and dirty and filthy. Repentance is that cleansing shower. I think most of the time when when we think about repentance, we picture this this picture of an angry God and he's got our arm in a an arm lock and he's like, you better say it, You, you better repent. It's really painful until we finally give in. That's not the biblical picture of repentance. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Let me try to illustrate it this way. I woke up last week one morning, and my neck was just just all jacked up. It was stiff. I don't know what I did. I think I was lifting weights the day before, and I I messed it up, and I slept on it wrong. And I went through, I guess it was just two weeks ago, I went through the whole week, and I I had to do the, you know, I look like R2-D2 when I'm trying to turn. I couldn't move it, and it was painful, and didn't feel necessarily like a chiropractor thing. It felt more like a muscle. And so I made an appointment. And I got a, I got a massage on my neck. One of those like deep tissue massages. Have you ever had one of those? Oh, those things are painful. I'm laying on that table and I'm, got, I'm grabbing a hold of the sides of it. And she's working on my neck and it's, it's painful. But you know what? It was, a, it was a good type of painful. Because when I got done, it was like, yeah, I, 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 can, move, I can move my neck. It, it doesn't hurt that way anymore. Repentance is a painful process, but the outcome is good because you're back in a right relationship with God. Repentance is when we see God in all of his holiness, and we see ourselves in our sinfulness, and we acknowledge that. And we make the changes in our lives that need to be met. And you know where we see our sin and God's holiness most clearly? We see it at the cross. The cross tells us that our sin was so bad that God could never accept us in our sinful state. God's too holy and too perfect and too righteous to be in the presence of sin. That's what the cross teaches us about our sin. But on the cross, we don't just get a picture of God's holiness. We also get a picture of his love and his grace and his mercy. 
God's holiness and justice needed to be satisfied on the cross, but, but in his love, God said, listen, I'm willing to pay for your sin through my son. I love you enough that I'll take the punishment you deserve. That's what happened on the cross. Listen, maybe you're here this morning and, and maybe you feel like God is just totally distant. Maybe you can't sense his presence in your life. Maybe you can't sense his love in your life right now. Could it be that you have alienated yourself from God because of your refusal to, to repent? Remember, repentance means to change your mind. It means to stop walking in the direction you've been walking in and you begin to walk in a different way. Listen, if you're involved in some sin right now, don't, don't hold on to it. Turn from it. Let it go. Repent and receive that time of refreshing from God. I remember that not long after the, the movie The Passion of the Christ came out, many years ago now, a young man named Dan Leach walked into a police station and admitted to killing his 19-year-old girlfriend. His girlfriend's death had been ruled a suicide, and Dan Leach was off scot-free. But he saw that movie, and, and something happened when he watched that movie. He was confronted with his own sin and guilt. And he was confronted with the love and the sacrifice of God, and he knew that he had to face his crime. That's what repentance is. It's being honest with God and others about your sin, no matter the consequences. And despite the consequences, it's knowing that there is life and forgiveness and renewal that God offers you through Jesus. Here in just a minute, we're going to come to this communion table and we're going to have an opportunity to do exactly what we've talked about. Confess and repent and then receive the grace of Jesus Christ. Let, let's pray. Father, we're grateful and thankful that you have given us this gift of repentance. God, we're, we're so thankful that when we sin and fail you, that you're not done with us. That you give us the opportunity to, to be restored into a right relationship with you. Father, we, we praise you for that. And so God, I pray this morning that you'd impact us with this truth, that, that repentance is not a one-time event, it's a, it's a lifestyle. For those of us, Lord, that are here this morning that are holding on tightly to our sin, would you show us the freedom that comes with giving it up to you? I pray now, God, as we come to this communion table that you would make real what we've just talked about. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.